0: talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today.
2: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board. Wheelerskin is in the cloud. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. The Prime Minister goes to Europe just as gas prices
3: hit record highs. Maybe he'll top up in Russia before heading home. Here's Scott Thompson!
0: Dave Woodard still in the news booth uh, because uh, Dave accomplished uh, quite a feat and he has uh, really uh, I'm not well we'll get the story from him but uh, jumped on to physical fitness to say the least Dave Woodard uh, has completed his very first half marathon I believe and he is with us now Dave first of all congratulations how thank you doing you.
3: thank you very much um, I'm sore today. But other than that, I'm good.
0: <laughs> so for those of us that aren't uh, aficionados when it comes to running, how far is a half marathon?
3: So it is twenty one point one kilometers is is a half marathon.
0: So, uh, when did you get the running bug? How did this start for you? So, about a year
3: and a half ago, uh, as many of us in the pandemic, we were looking for something to do, get outside, especially as everything was closed. So, uh, one of the things that I thought to do was, you know, maybe a little bit of, you know, physical uh, fitness should be something that I do. And uh, I started thinking about all of these apps and, and and ideas from from my phone and one of them is something called a couch to 5k and if you're unaware of what that is, it's basically it's just an app that helps you go from doing nothing at all uh, to running five kilometers at a time. So uh, I, I started that and, and it uh, at first, you know you're running so maybe thirty seconds at a time and then walking for a couple of minutes. Um, and as I continued doing it, I found that I was doing it pretty easily and enjoyed it, and it was getting outside and doing something. Uh, and it just was one of those things that one thing led to another, and all of a sudden I was uh, signed up to do the uh, Chili Half Marathon, which was uh, uh, supposed to be actually this weekend in Burlington. It got changed to a virtual event, but I decided to do it on the date anyways, which turned mm-hmm. out great. It was, it was a beautiful day yesterday, minus the wind. Uh, so it was, it was nice to, to be able to do that and, and, and finish something like that.
0: So uh, you talked about this app, and I find this fascinating because mm-hmm. this—it sounds like it was almost a personal coach for you along the way. It was encouraging.
3: Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that it doesn't—it doesn't give you a, 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 a any kind of encouragement as to say, you know, like you can uh, you can do this. It's not that kind of a, an app, but what it does is it allows you to do things that are relatively simple yeah yeah exactly it measures how you're doing It's relatively simple at first so you can feel like you're you're doing something along the way so i think that was really helpful and encouraging for me to know that okay you know uh, when i started i thought 5k that is forever that's a long distance to go um and and by the time that it was that i got to that five kilometer mark it was like okay i can do this this is pretty cool
0: so how long did it take you to get up to 5K?
3: It took eight weeks to get to 5K. Um, wow, so was, that's,
0: incre- that's amazing. Though, yeah, you, you know,
3: it is it is one of those things that, uh, and I, maybe that's why at first I thought, there's no way that I'm going to be able to run five kilometers in eight weeks. But the way that it works out in the app, it's it's you're doing runs, uh, you know, all week long, and, and you'll do the same kind of run uh, for a week and then you'll move up the following week and then move up the right. following week. So it's very gradual. You don't necessarily even notice it. Uh, but when you, you know, start at you know, 30 seconds of running to two minutes to walking, you don't think that you'll ever get to that point where you're going to be doing 5K.
0: So have you ever been a runner? How athletic were you prior to this?
3: Oh gosh, maybe uh, I think the last time I ran any kind of distance was like middle school. I think I ran yeah. for uh, I ran for Ryerson middle school back in uh, <laughs> uh, a long time yeah. ago at any rate um and and that was really it. like I, I did some some running in high school. Uh, I joined um, the Naval Reserve when I was out of high school and, and did some running then, but it wasn't anything that I looked at as being something that I, I wanted to do um, you know, through my uh, spare time. So I knew I could run. I, I knew that I enjoyed running in the past, so I thought, you know what, I'll give it a shot.
0: So was this hard on your body in any way, or because it was such a gradual thing? Even se- thinking, you know, eight weeks—that's not. It's only two months. That's not very long at all. But it, was it? Was it hard on your body going through that eight weeks?
3: You know what? Not really. I think at first, it, it you had a lot of, um, or I had a lot of uh, things like shin splints or like yeah. parts that I, I hadn't been using, like in terms of muscles. I, I just I. I they were sore, and then I started reading into a little bit more and thinking, okay, well, maybe I need a little bit. Uh, I need better shoes to run, or, or yeah. you know, do I need something? Do I need to actually see a doctor because sometimes you have uh, people who haven't been running; they have certain um, uh, muscular issues that that need mm-hmm. to be addressed, whether it be you know fallen arches or anything like that. So, yeah. you know, you look into those kinds of things, and and and. Um, I noticed that it was only really the shoes that I needed to change. So once I did that, I found that it was much easier to run. Um, and, and I did it really, and I started in September uh, of, what, 2000, I guess that would be 2021? No, mm-hmm. to, so to, uh 2020. Um, it's all a blur now. I know, I know, I know. It was 18 months ago, at any rate. Uh, so it was one of those things that it wasn't, it, I wasn't doing it when it was really cold. I wasn't doing it when right. it was super hot. So uh, temperature really wasn't something that I was worried about or anything like that. And, and when you run um, that short of distance, it's not even necessarily about hydration or anything like that. So it's just a matter of making sure that I had the right equipment.
0: So do you got the bug now I mean do you have to get out there every week or a cer- certain amount of times or you start to get you know you start to go nuts or you, have you got the bug now?
3: I, I don't know see and I'll, I'll explain I love to run now I love going out I go out at least every weekend um, except for you know when I've been off sick um, but it's one of those things where it's it's something that I do notice that I miss if I don't do it but if you tell me today that I don't have to run tomorrow I I'm not going to be sad about it. (laughs) That makes sense. Um, No, I
0: get it. Uh, I had someone say to me one time, you know, you'll never, you you may feel crappy before you work out or in your case, run, but after it's over, you'll never, you'll never feel that way. You'll always feel great about it. So I guess that's the motivation. Absolutely. So advice for those, advice for those that are thinking of taking this step.
3: I think what you want to do is be realistic. I don't think, I mean, it took me a year and a half to do a half marathon. And that, from what I'm understanding, is a very fast timeline so don't yeah. necessarily think that just because you pick it up today you're going to be able to run uh, you know five k tomorrow. It doesn't mean that you'll be able to run um, you know a half marathon within a couple of weeks. Have realistic timelines. The other advice that I have is that if you have a desire to do half marathon or or a full marathon. Consistency is key. Like so many things in life, yeah. yep. you have yep. to keep at it. You have to keep doing it. You can't just fall off the bandwagon and decide a month later that you're still going to do the half marathon and be able to do it.
0: Dave Woodard with us, of course, uh, in the CHML newsroom and just finished a half marathon, a goal for his and uh, 5K inside or just uh, at about the eight week mark. That's amazing. Dave, congratulations. Thanks so much. Uh, best of luck with all this moving forward. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. As you know, the Heritage Classic is coming up next week. Not only uh, going to see uh, Buffalo and Toronto play at Tim Hortons Field, but also uh, the day after that, the Bulldogs and Oshawa Generals play. So great weekend to be in the Hammer and Collective Arts Brewing. uh, Jumping on board with a special batch of IPA just for the Heritage Classic. Can you argue with that? Let's bring in Tony Shelton, Director, Brand Marketing and Communication with Collective Arts and is with us now. Tony, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
4: Thanks for having me. I'm well. How are you?
0: I'm doing good. Thanks so much. Uh, For those that may not know, tell everybody what collective uh, Collective Arts Brewing is all about.
4: For sure, we are a craft brewery located on Burlington Street down in the Hammer for those uh, OG Hamiltonians, they'll know us uh, for where the old Lakeport building was and even Brewers uh, before then. Um, so we occupy that old space. And now we, uh, we've we got a, a, a multi kind of North American uh, brewery functioning out of that facility. Um, although we're talking about hockey today, we actually focus more on visual arts and working with artists from around the world. Um, and we brew anything from loggers, to your easy drinking beers to, you know, hoppy beers that we're going to talk about again today. Um, we also just started making our uh, ready to drink cocktails and ciders. We're we're really all about uh, innovative and creative products.
0: So where did the idea come for the Heritage Classic?
4: Great question. We have been brewing collaboratively with breweries from around the world for as long as we can remember. And, you know, the brewing community is super tight knit. And um, as we looked at the portfolio this year, we thought we really want to work with, you know, some of these breweries that we've worked with over the past few years. Thin Man Brewery out of Buffalo, New York, is one of the first Uh, First, breweries we ever collaborated with. Um, And, you know, as the world is starting to open up because of COVID, we sat down with them and thought, you know, what kind of beer, what's the inspiration behind our collaboration? Um, We, uh, you know, we looked at the calendar and lo and behold, there is a hockey game and and I would say a hockey (laughs) weekend to celebrate in Hamilton. Um, And we thought, you know, the beer is going to be launching around that time. So, how can we really celebrate the Hamilton community, the hockey community, and bring and use beer to kind of bring everyone back together and celebrate community?
0: How do you collaborate with a brewery that's in another country or across a border or, you know, any distance away? What does that mean?
4: Well, it means something pre-COVID and it means something different post-COVID. I think just like a lot of collaboration does these days, but it really is collaborating from everything from the recipe to the, you know, the packaging to the name. Um, It's just like, how can we combine our creative efforts and their creative efforts from the liquid to the hops that we use to the artists that we work with? It's really to show that uh, craft beer is just such a collaborative effort. And the more, you know, the more minds you can get in the room, the better, you know, the more creative and unique you can, you can get. So it, in this case, it's, it's a, uh, it's a virtual beer together, probably where we chit chat and shoot the shit around what we want to, uh, what we want to mm. make, what's important to us and what's, you know, what's cool and what's, in, what's, what we should be, what should inspire this, this beer club.
0: So is it brewed now out of your facility or is it brewed out of theirs as well?
4: It's it, it it sometimes is like, a you know, we'll brew one here, we'll brew one there. That's that's typically how they work. But I think just because the given of the the nature of the game, we're brewing this one here in Hamilton to support, mm-hmm. obviously, the the endeavors that were the hockey game being in Hamilton. And then we'll ship this across all of our U.S. markets, um, but it'll, and it'll all ship directly from Hamilton, which is also, a, you know, pretty cool. And we're pretty proud of that.
0: Now, when you do one, let's take this this brewery that you're you've teamed up with uh, in Buffalo for the Heritage Classic. Say, for example, you did a batch, then they did a batch, then and vice versa. Would they both taste the same, or would they be a bit different depending on the point of origin?
4: It typically depends on the point, the point of origin. Like, you know, obviously, like, you, we can use the same ingredients, we can use the same hops, but you, you'll often find that they they do taste tend to taste a bit different.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and
4: sometimes that's intentional. And sometimes that's not, um, you know, we often talk about the Hamilton water and just using the, the, the crazy filtration system we have. And I know, I, for those of for those, of, you know, our listeners who who don't know, but Hamilton is well known for having a good having good water we often do get compliments on you know how that affects our beer making and so i think that it, it again it depends in the past when we've collaborated with thin man for example they'll take the recipe maybe they change the hops or they find a local more local ingredient to make it have a bit of a different edge but in this case it's just one recipe and it's coming right of hamilton and shipping to the states
0: is this industry just as healthy down there as it is here
4: I can't speak to it down there from, you know, the other breweries perspective, yeah. it has been a grind for us. I have to say, I think, you know, the on premise or the bars and restaurants, everyone has yeah. suffered. And, and so we're just trying to do our best that, you know, to bring, you know, and again, I, I talk about community, it's really about Creating a product that can continue to to bring community back together through, you know, bars and restaurants and and hockey is obviously one of those, um, those occasions where you want to gather and and celebrate. So it has been, uh, it hasn't been easy, but I think we're, uh, we're definitely on the, on the uphill uphill from here
0: you talked about collaboration and how much there is within this industry uh is there anything um you know the old days a secret recipe oh nobody knows how it was done everything you know there's a certain secret recipe to everything is that fallen by the wayside or is there still obviously secret recipes but then there's room for collaboration as well
4: I don't think there's a lot of secret recipes I would have to, I would have to, you'd you'd be better off talking to our brewmaster, Ryan. He's probably listening, saying there's lots of secrets, Tony, but I think for the most (laughs) part, I think for the most part, it's really, again, it's collaborating. What can we learn from the way this brewery does it? What can we learn from the way this brewery does it? Of course, we don't want to write our our recipes on the wall, but at the same time, we're innovating constantly um, and trying to come up with just really great quality, you know, using really unique ingredients so you know we're kind of like you know we're not we don't have a lot to hide
0: (laughs) how do we get how do we get the heritage classic how much of this are you going to pump
4: out we are we have a lot of it it's available at our hamilton brewery it's available at our toronto brewery um we ship same day and next day through our direct to home um e-commerce channel so on our on our website at collectiveartsontario.com um it's va- so it, it, it'll be available for the next probably month i want to say i know that the uh, hamilton brewery folks are also having a, a big screening party so you can get it on there and in, in different kind of specials and bucket specials i know they've got a lot of exciting things happening at the hamilton uh, brewery and, and you know for Those who are heading heading to the game or after the game, the the Burlington Street location is a great place to stop.
0: So now that we're uh, you talked about the difficulty, obviously, during the pandemic, for obvious reasons. What are your hopes? What are your what do you see coming this spring? What do you see in the next, uh, you know, four months, six months as we hopefully are getting out of this? How how is how how is uh, Collective Arts bouncing back from this?
4: Um, I, I I feel like a bit of a broken record here, but I I would say it's again about building community and about showing our drinkers that we're here for them. We're trying to get we're trying to make what they want. We're trying to bring back events and experiences that are that are fun. We're really just trying to to leave everyone that we touch a little bit more inspired and happy than than they were than they than we found them. I think the pandemic has brought us all down a little bit, and Collective Arts is really focused on making delicious drinks that can inspire you and bring you along for the you know community that we're all trying to create and get back after covid so it's really yeah like i mentioned it's events it's 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 making delicious drinks it's about celebrating uh celebrating the good stuff
0: tony shelton with us director of brand marketing and communications with collective arts uh brand new heritage classic uh and you can find out more at their website collectiveartsbrewing.com. tony thanks for the time good luck with this
4: thank you so much you too bye
0: we certainly remember uh, last year and 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 really Canadians. Uh, really started to take note and and really uh, listen, started to listen to what many have been saying for generations in regard to residential schools uh, in Canada. Of course, we remember the horrific finds back in Kamloops and then it just sort of continued on, continued on from there. Uh, another 169 potential grave sites found at a former residential school in northern Alberta uh, just last week. And of course, we know about uh, ongoing work here at at, uh, the former Mohawk Institute residential school to get an update on where we are and if this is continuing to move forward at the pace it needs to be let's bring in Kimberly Murray executive lead survivor secretariat former executive director of the truth and reconciliation Commission of Canada and with us now Kimberly thank you for the time I hope you're well
1: uh, hi Scott thanks for having me today
0: Obviously, we got word last week of of another discovery at a residential school uh, north of Edmonton. Uh, are you are are you convinced that this work is still continuing? That it still has the interest of Canadians uh, as it did when we found out a, a, about Kamloops, uh, you know, many months ago. Is this still is this work still moving forward?
1: Um, Well absolutely I think we still have the interest of Canadians and more importantly we have the interest of survivors and community members and intergenerational survivors wanting to have answers Um, so uh, yes the work continues to uh, uh, take place at the Mohawk Institute and uh, we're working uh, we've been working over the winter with planning for our search that's going to resume in the in well, it's snowing today where I am, mm. uh, but it will resume uh, in the spring and, um, um, you know, continue. Uh, as, as I spoke about last time we were here, we have uh, almost 600 acres that we need to search.
0: So let's talk about this. What kind of planning are you doing during the winter months to prepare for, obviously, the physical search, which will start in the spring as soon as weather permits? Give us some, a bit of backstory of the Mohawk Institute.
1: Um, Yeah, so uh, as you know, it operated for 136 years and um, there's uh, almost 600 acres that we have to search. Um, We started the search in in the fall uh, and we were searching right up until December uh, before the snow came. So... Uh, Over the winter months, uh, we've been gathering the data that we collected both with a ground penetrating radar. We have two machines. uh, And uh, we also did LiDAR, which is uh, a a different type of technology that uses uh, light um, uh, to bounce into the earth and uh, reflects back and gives us some uh, pictures and idea of what the ground looks like. So uh, we've been taking the winter to process that data uh, and we will be back on the ground to continue Uh, doing the search of the grids that we laid down uh, before the snow came uh, and planning for the rest of of the the area that needs to be searched. Um, I think uh, one of the things uh, Survivors has spoke to us a lot about is about the Mohawk Canal and the Mohawk Lake. So uh, we will be running that search uh, and we're working with our police task force to put those plans in uh, to get into those waterways.
0: You are the survivor secretariat. What are you hearing from the community? You talked about areas. uh, How much? How uh, that information must be so valuable. How how big a part of all of this are they? What what, what's that collaboration like?
1: I mean, it's probably the most important thing that uh, we have uh, is working with the survivors and hearing from them. Uh, And as you know, we're unique uh, across Canada because we also have the task force. So um, the police task force has been interviewing survivors at the Mohawk Institute uh, from across the province and into other provinces. Um, And that information sits with the police task force because it is a criminal police investigation. Um, And then we have the survivors that actually share information with the survivor secretary and um, inform us uh, in where to focus our next search areas so it's really important and you know as we said in the fall we started behind the Mohawk Institute uh, because that's where the survivors told us to focus behind the barn areas and that's where we started Um, and our plans uh, for the spring are are, are following along what the survivors are are telling us where to go next so uh, that's what we're doing.
0: How do you balance out solving these age old issues and, 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 and opening these wounds as well? It must be so difficult.
1: Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, we're working very closely with the community of Six Nations and with the different social service organizations and making sure that we keep everyone informed about the work that we're doing. And, um, you know, we're trying to encourage uh, families and community members, both, you know, within uh, First Nations communities, but the broader community to connect with us. Uh, We do have newsletters and we do send out information uh, through our newsletter and our blogs, Uh, but we don't want to just send information out. people actually want to receive it because we want to be you know careful uh, and to be trauma-informed so I encourage people to go to our website and sign up if they want to uh, receive updates from us about the work that we're doing uh, to have you know the most up-to-date information uh,
0: what an incredible what an incredible um, effort everybody is putting in to answer these Uh, questions that have been asked for uh, centuries. What do you want non-Indigenous Canadians to take from this?
1: Um, Well, I think that uh, everyone needs to sort of acknowledge that uh, these things happened at the Mohawk Institute and uh, to... you know, really appreciate the resiliency of First Nations communities and, you know, to join us in the work that we have to do and to support us in that work. And, you know, we don't, we we don't need the denialism that happens in some situations. Um, We're looking for people to stand next to us. uh, And that's the only way we can move forward for reconciliation is to work together.
0: Kimberly Murray with us, Executive Lead, Survivor Secretariat, former Executive Director of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, working with uh, for, uh, at the site, former Mohawk Institute Residential School, to get answers there and hopefully start that again in the spring. Kimberly, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck.
1: Thank you, Scott.
0: Day 12 of uh, the Russian invasion, and many, many never thinking it would go as far as it has uh, certainly uh, for 12 days of this and uh, obviously the tragedy and the misery continues uh, we want to give you another local perspective of how this is uh, affecting the ukraine community right here in hamilton and what hamiltonians can do to help let's bring in father william makarenko of the ukrainian orthodox cathedral of saint vladimir and with us now thank you so much for taking the time to join us uh considering i hope you're doing well
5: I am thank you. And thanks for having me on your program.
0: Really appreciate it. What are you hearing what are you hearing from your community? What what sort of stories, what sort of calls are you taking?
5: Well, my community is quite is quite eclectic. I have people in my parish that are second first, second generations and fourth, fifth generations that whose parents, grandparents came here back in the eighteen nineties. So I'm getting a very large mix. But even though they come from various immigration periods, they all have the same feeling about Ukraine. That's the matrix for, for, for their soul. So that's what it tells they the Ukrainians, that they're Christians, that they're hardworking, and that they can't be defeated or subdued. We have a saying in Ukrainian, that was the Maidan call. We cannot be subdued. So that spirit has now encompassed the entire parish, the congregation in the city. Uh, we're, we're, we're united in the appeals that are being made. Uh, we're donating to the various fundraising avenues that have been opened for us. Just recently, there was there been a call for items for the refugees in Ukraine. Uh, yesterday, uh, we, uh, the day before, we've amassed uh, three basementfuls of uh, medical supplies, uh, sleeping bags, clothes, uh, diapers for children, all this sort of stuff. The response from the community has been fantastic, almost indescribable. And that's just not my parish. Other Ukrainian parishes have also uh, said the same thing. It's right across Ontario, right across the country, for crying out loud.
0: Did the community see this coming? I mean, many said that they didn't feel that he, that Putin would go this far. Talk a little bit about that and the history and, and how the well, community's feeling.
5: Nobody believed this would happen. You know, we, uh, people who study history know that Ukraine was subjugated by the, by the Russians over almost 400 years ago. And we had various periods of trying to become free and liberated. Uh, but that was yesterday. Uh, the, re- the most, But what that did accomplish, I guess, is I'll give you a case in history. The Great Famine of 3-33, 30 we lost anywhere from 4 to 6 million people in the grain-growing areas of Ukraine and also in the far east, su- southeast. Those villages were decimated, they were emptied, and what the Soviets did, they brought in Russian speakers to fill those empty villages. Well, that's what, where, where we get Donbass-Indulhansk issues from. Those were the Russian speakers the Russian people that were there. So that, aid, that assisted that problem. Okay? Now, over the course of the centuries, you had a lot of intermarriage between Russians and Ukrainians. Okay? So right now we have 5 billion Ukrainians living and working in Russia. Hmm. We have, I don't know how many, uh, maybe the same amount of, uh, of Russians and Ukrainians who are Russian speakers who are Russian by identity. So th- there's been a kind of a grafting of these two different peoples. Like Russians and Ukrainians, we're not the same Mm-hmm. We may have the same religion, we may have the same Slavic roots, but we're two distinct people. You try calling an Irishman English, you, you know what he'll do to you, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a lesson in history. Yes, the absolutely. We're two separate people. But, you know, when this war, what war? It's not a war, it's an invasion. People on, in Ukraine couldn't believe that this is happening because they have relatives in Russia. That's why the, the, the propaganda machine in Russia was so strict. Some of the soldiers didn't know they were coming into Ukraine when they found out. What are they doing? They're leaving their their technology behind, and they're running back home. Let's talk.
0: Because I've heard this many times, Father, that that there's such a a blend of families and so much history there between these two countries, Um, you know, some positive, some negative, Uh, but it, it seems as if, uh, 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 the people back in Russia aren't really aware of why this is happening. They were sold that this was a liberation. It, it, do you think that the truth, the message is getting back to Russia about what is happening in Ukraine?
5: Slowly. And, and thanks, thanks to social media. Social media is playing a big effect, number one. The anonymous uh, group that is, uh, you know, using a, a cyber attacks, they've, they've, they've basically... Uh, put down even the the Russian FSB uh, department. They've hacked uh, TV programs showing the events in Ukraine. But the most important thing are the soldiers going back to Russia and telling their parents what's going on. I'm just going to tell you that Soviet, I keep calling them Soviet, but the mentality is still Soviet. The Russians who have been captured, the Ukrainian army allows them to call home and tell their mothers that I'm alive, mom, don't worry, Come and pick me up in Kiev, Okay, that's happening. We are finding empty, uh, massive tanks with soldiers' identifications left behind. They're running. Okay? I wish that would would be across the stream, but it's not. Some are very dedicated. Some have believed, quote, the big lie. Okay? And they've swallowed it hook, plug, and sinker. We have cases where uh, son and daughter works in Ukraine. Parents live in Moscow or St. Petersburg. See, the children call the parents. Tell what's going on. And the parents are telling them, "Oh, you're you're not telling me the truth. It's all propaganda." Wow.
0: Mm-hmm. Father William Makarenko with us of the Ukrainian Orthodox Cathedral Saint Vladimir uh, in Hamilton, talking about uh, what is he he is hearing from the community uh, in regard to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. Good luck moving forward.
5: Pleasure being here. God bless you all. God bless. Bye bye. <laughs>
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Many have uh, spoken out uh, that China should be doing more to try to reel Russia back in, or at least condemn uh, what it is that they're doing. Many are asking the question, considering the control that Russia has over the world, and we all know how much China is interwoven into all aspects of our economy, uh, and Huawei comes to mind, uh, what would happen if all of a sudden it was China that was the, the aggressor and not Russia? what sort of predicament would we be in then? Let's ask Charles Burton, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald laurier Institute and is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Good to speak with you, Scott. Everything's good here in Ottawa. No trucks. It's... it' good, good news there, all around. Uh, so, after seeing, you know, how Europe and the rest of the world is is uh, dependent on Russia and their and their energy reserves and such, have we had the same discussion over how much control China now has over systems here? And you know, the Huawei comes to mind. The Prime Minister still has not uh, denounced that. What would happen if, say, uh, just like China invading uh, Ukraine, it was China? Uh, Sorry, Russian invading Ukraine. It was China that was uh, invading Taiwan. What would that situation be like?
6: Well, I think that the Chinese are certainly looking at Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine and thinking, well, you know, NATO's not doing anything. Russia is able to um, uh, engage in a serious military action with a view to bringing Ukraine um, into a sort of Soviet empire or even... Uh, Putin recently was saying it, to s- seize its status as an independent country. And, uh, you know, we're letting it happen. So I think that emboldens the Chinese uh, with regard to Taiwan. The question really is, you know, the U.S.'s commitment to Taiwan is a bit ambiguous. And the Chinese could be taking from this that the U.S. is not prepared to risk a war where their own, people, their own soldiers might die um, to, to protect the sovereignty of democratic Taiwan. So it's certainly a bad news story. I think the only upside to this might be that the Chinese see the degree of resistance that the Ukrainians are, people are mounting against the Russian aggression and might rethink their idea that the people of Taiwan are actually yearning to be reunited with the motherland and ruled by the Communist Party from Beijing. Um, you know, that is the China's official ideological line, similar to the Russians' attitude towards Ukraine, which was it would readily welcome uh, the Russian liberators, if you will. But uh, that hasn't proven to be the case, and China might learn some lessons that, in fact, the people of Taiwan are much, much uh, more independently minded and, and, and desiring to maintain the Taiwan culture and democracy uh, if China was to engage in a military action against Taiwan, which is now looking more and more likely.
0: We remember that uh, the Prime Minister was reluctant to speak up against China during the two Michaels uh, situation. He he, he, he was very much apprehensive and then all of a sudden, blammo, uh, they were released. Again, reluctant to make the decision on Huawei yet today, he's in Europe um, waving the flag and, and, uh, and, and bringing everybody together. Are you surprised he's so vocal against Russia but was never vocal against or not as much as vocal against china
6: well you know before the russians actually invaded i think that there was a notion on the part of canada's political elite as you know putin is just is just uh, all words and no action and that he wouldn't do something that was so clearly against the interests of russia you know we've seen the, the the consequences for the russian economy which have been disastrous um, and i think there's been a similar attitude towards the chinese which is well you know they wouldn't actually uh, engage mm. in that sort of nationalistic adventure because it would obviously damage the economy and their relations with the west i think that we have to start taking these megalomaniacs a bit more seriously and hearing what they're saying when they're when they're giving public addresses and recognize that you know, Putin is now 70 years old and Xi Jinping is is almost that age and that they feel that they have an obligation to history to fulfill their delusional notions of their nation's destiny and could well engage, you know, that China could well engage in the kind of uh, disastrous adventurism that we're seeing Russia engaging in in Ukraine.
0: So, I mean, We've I heard- think
6: we should be worried and should should be prepared for it.
0: We've heard that uh, there isn't necessarily a lot of of love between China and Russia. They'll use each other to their own advantage. (laughs) I guess no surprise there, Uh, but not necessarily teammates. Uh, Do you have a concern that they can become a world power, the two together?
6: Well, I think that what is likely to happen here is that, you know, Russia is seriously weakened uh, by this war. And China is probably feeling positive about the distraction to the Western powers to try and defend um, the democracies on, uh, you know, to the east. Uh, but you know, Russia will become dependent on China for for trade. You know, for selling its oil and for mm-hmm. and for um, uh, other exports that it's unable to do with uh, Canada and the rest of the Western world anymore. And so China could use this leverage to to have Russia basically a subsidiary force of China, and China could then you know use the Russians to to leverage the geopolitical situation in 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 their plan to retake uh, Taiwan or to make Taiwan become a province of China. So I, I think that that you know it's bad news all around and uh, one hopes that there might be some change in Russia and putin uh, removed that might be the only salvation of the situation which i think is more and more moving in china's favor and i think our our government still doesn't get it
0: um what about the mood in russia do you see uh that eventually happening where people in russia will eventually find out the real truth even though they're being fed a, you know state media yeah. Um, that they do, they will realize what has been happening in Ukraine, and there'll be some sort of revolt back home. And and how does that play in China when not only is it the rest of the world that speaks up against Russia, but also its own people?
6: Well, I mean, that would be a very positive development if Russia was able to return to becoming a responsible stakeholder in global affairs and a reliable partner and and a democracy, you know, that, that would be an ideal situation. But I think, um, you know, Putin's hold on power is pretty strong, although, you know, it's becoming more and more apparent that there's something seriously wrong with him. He doesn't look well. He's very mm-hmm. puffy in the face and seems to be mentally deranged in in terms of his uh, more recent rhetoric, which has been much more uh, high emotional tone than, than the kind of very calm, uh, quiet assertions of of resentment over the the decline of the soviet union and blaming it on treachery from the west so you know i i think that people in russia particularly when they start to to suffer economically could well decide that putin is just not the right czar for for their nation and that they Mm -hmm. ought to look into alternatives but you know, historically, the Russians have been able to sustain a great deal of economic suffering and still maintain their very strong sense of nationalism. And from what we know, most Russians, as you say, because they, you know, they believe in the Russian media, are still supportive of Putin and supportive of the of the invasion of Ukraine, which they think is, is being successful and welcomed by the Ukrainian people.
0: Charles Burton, Senior Fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, talking about the relationship between Russia and China during this conflict. Charles, as always, thanks for the
6: time. Be well. Take care, Scott. I'm sure we'll be talking about this more
0: hear lots of talk about sanctions and uh, oligarchs being sanctioned in, in trade and trade and so on and so forth, although many will say we don't do that much trade with Russia. Uh, but certainly uh, sanctions against Russian billionaires uh, who profited from, uh, obviously, the breakup of the former Soviet Union are being hit. Does that make a difference? Uh, is it different this time? now that we have sanctions during crimea when it was taken there were sanctions as well it didn't seem to matter too much let's bring in mark manger associate professor of political uh political economy and global affairs specializing in international monetary and financial policy university of toronto and is with us now mark thank you for the
2: time i hope you're well hi yes i am thanks good afternoon Are- Are sanctions different
0: this time because they include the oligarchs? Mark, is it different this time? We remember hearing of sanctions during Crimea. Uh, Everybody's so dependent on Russia. Do these even have an effect?
2: Yeah, they are different this time. In fact, this is completely unprecedented, uh, the way the Russian economy has been sanctioned uh, in in really in in tight coordination of the Western allies. Um, um, I think we're paying a bit too much attention to the oligarchs. Um, Yes, it's good. You know that morally good that we're sanctioning them but um from what we know about russia it's not the case that you know the oligarchs can just tell putin um you know this costs us money can you stop what you're doing
0: so why are we putting uh, paying too much attention to that they don't have the the sway that the people are suggesting
2: well we don't really know this but um you know there have been cases in the past when oligarchs that objected to putin's policies have simply been expropriated even thrown into jail uh, and had to flee the country so i think the power balance as far as we can tell from the outside is very much in favor of the whole state security apparatus and Putin's, putin's immediate regime rather than the oligarchs and i don't think that um if you know, if we were just targeting the oligarchs, I don't think that would make much of a difference.
0: So it looks good, sounds good, makes people feel good, but doesn't really have the impact.
2: Not the oligarchs. The other sanctions, yes, absolutely, they do have an impact.
0: Uh, many are wondering if these sanctions are harder on the rest of Europe than they are Russia, simply because Europe is so dependent on Russian energy.
2: Yeah. So this is so we have to differentiate a little bit here. Gas, yes, uh, Europe is highly dependent on Russian gas, Um, it's 40, 50%, you know, even more for some countries, but you know, the the countries that are most dependent on Russian gas, like, you know, Poland and Lithuania, are actually the most vocal in saying we cannot allow this to continue. Um, It's also that even though for for Europe, it's a lot of gas, it's really only around 7% of Russia's exports. So if we keep, if you know, they, the Europeans keep buying the gas, that's not going to make a huge difference. Where Russia can really be squeezed is its oil exports.
0: So elaborate on that. How do, how do we
2: do that? So if, um, so oil, oil is, you know, gas comes via pipeline, right? right? Mostly to Europe. Oil is shipped by tanker and there are other places in the world where oil can be sourced from. The Saudis could increase production. Um, They don't want to because they benefit from, and there are various other reasons, because they benefit from higher oil prices and they've kind of made an arrangement with the Russians. But that could be replaced, right? That's where most of the oil comes from normally anyway. Um, And um, in that sense, oil is traded globally. It comes by tanker. It's a global market. And if the West doesn't buy from Russia anymore, that'll that'll make it difficult for Russia to sell its oil. But it doesn't mean that there's suddenly no oil available.
0: Does this change other uh, world energy policies? Does this change energy policy uh, policy in Canada or the United States or even the UK or Europe for that matter?
2: Yeah, I mean it's um, so in the short run, and you know, I don't, I wouldn't have said this a year ago, but in the short run, we probably need to increase output and even you know our dirtiest oil from you know, tar sands oil from Alberta, and maybe we have to, you know, actually get Keystone XL underway so that North America Mm. is really energy independent. In the medium term, it actually means that we should wean ourselves completely of fossil fuels, because fossil fuels come from unstable places, right? Undemocratically governed, unstable places normally, right? The few exceptions are places like Norway, Australia and Canada, Um, and the US. (laughs) in the US, but they're they're using it themselves, right? Uh, So, uh, so we really have to wean ourselves off that not just for environmental reasons, but for strategic reasons.
0: Uh, That sounds good. But let's be honest, Germany is some of the has some of the most innovative work on that policy, they are more uh, a slave to Russia than anybody, especially after shutting down their nuclear plants. So are we kidding ourselves to say to, 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 to see that that's a solution even medium term at this point?
2: Well, I think in the short term, in the short term, they're in difficulties. And and that's their own policy errors. Um, But again, you know, let's say they keep buying the gas from Russia. That's 7% of Russian exports. If they stop buying the oil, that's 50% of Russian exports, right? So in the medium term, they can do that. And um, if they do things like, you know, build the two new uh, liquefied natural gas uh, ports on the North Sea coast, they've announced, if they start diversifying, they start bringing in more gas. I mean, all of these things can be done in the medium term. What about Canada? Should we be doing the same? Of course, we should be doing the same. I mean, we should have been doing the same if there had never been a war in Ukraine, we should still be doing this. Uh, It's just um, what has shifted now is that in the short term, we must pump more oil. In the medium to long term, we must shift more radically towards renewables.
0: Mark Banger with us, associate professor, political economy and global affairs, specializing in international monetary and financial policy, University of Toronto. Fascinating discussion, Mark. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. To break down where we are after 12 days after the invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia, where are we now? What is the plan moving forward? Uh, Many thought that this, uh, if it did happen, would be over very, very quickly and wondering why it is bogging down the way it is. Let's bring in Jeffrey Edmonds, National Security Strategist, Senior Analyst at uh, Center for New American Security, a research organization in Arlington, Virginia, and a former director for Russia on uh, the National Security Council in the Obama administration. Jeffrey is with us now. Jeff, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thanks for having me. So what does it say about the Russian war machine when you're 12 days into an invasion of Ukraine? Is this going the way Putin planned it?
7: So definitely not. And that's been the big question among military analysts is what exactly, you know, had the Russian military end up, you know, with a ground offensive that's that's made very little progress. Um, I mean, they made some progress, but it's really not the way many of us thought the Russian military would fight. And there are different interpretations, but I really think this comes down to um, a political fault in the sense that mo- the vast majority of the military had no idea they were going to conduct an invasion of Europe's largest country. Um, and they were fed very poor assumptions about the level of resistance that they would reach inside Ukraine. It was clear that their the mission they were given was to drive into Kiev and um, basically surround the, the capital, take over the capital, and the rest of the resistance would fall. And so that has not been the case. And so in many ways, the Russian military has not been used in the way that that it has typically trained.
0: So what happened to, because we heard about this uh, convoy, which, you know, was 20 miles and 30 miles and whatever long, it's growing, growing by the day. And then it, like you said, it, it just, it just stalled. Is this due to a different strategy or is this Russian military saying, nope, we're not moving forward?
7: I think it's a it's one a logistics problem and it's it's one of of actually deploying units to the field in the sense that you know these brigade tactical uh, battalion tactical groups these BTGs as we call them um, there are probably a number of those dispersed along that that convoy and these guys are used to like open combined arms warfare where you're out in the field and you're maneuvering and things of that nature but clearly they've either, be, either been given instruction to just stay on the roads and get in as quickly as they can or they truly are incompetent because it's I mean this is really my assumption was that that convoy would keep moving and that they would deploy around the city as they as they got closer. But it really seems like the Russian military has had some very significant logistical problems. Is
0: that convoy vulnerable right now to attack?
7: So I, I think it is, but either so one or two possibilities. One, the Ukrainians don't have anything they can bring to bear on it at the time. Or maybe they're waiting for it to get closer. I think one of those two things is is true. But yeah, you definitely just don't want to sit on the open on a road. I mean, the Russians have done a lot of this in this campaign so far, and it hasn't worked well. Uh, but you definitely don't want to have a convoy just sitting out in the open for extended periods of time.
0: What does it say the longer that this goes?
7: So this is this is the, you know, I've referred to it as staring into this big abyss. Because I don't, you know, Putin's political goals are not achievable, I don't think. And I don't think the, the, their military certainly can't do it. Let's say they do take over Kiev and they, they install a public government there. They have to stay there because the government won't survive, you know, a day if they pull out. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to tell what the actual end state is here, because not only are you occupying this country and your, your military is getting exhausted, the Ukrainian economy not doing, you know, is going to be doing horribly. And so you're going to have more unrest there. The resistance isn't going to go away. At the same time, you have the Russian economy, which is which is, you know, Falling apart at light speed. And so at some point, I think this culminates. And, you know, I think Putin's going to realize he has an existential problem on his hands.
0: Especially no matter what happens at the end of this, he's still going to be public enemy number one. The world has turned against him now. How does he play that?
7: So, I, I unfortunately, I have a pretty dark scenario for you. Um, in my mind, at some point, you're going to have unrest in Moscow, given the economic situation there. I mean, you have a large middle class there that's suddenly not going to have any purchasing power. I mean, you th- think about things like MasterCard and Visa and Microsoft. You're talking about the staples of everyday life no longer being there. I think that, you know, with a stalled military operation, unrest in Moscow, at some point he might believe that he's losing control of the state. And at that point, I think the the most likely action is that he would instigate an Article 5 with NATO, basically saying like, OK, if you're going to keep these economic sanctions on me and, and destroy my regime, I'm going to up the ante and we're going to have an all-out war with all of the nuclear trappings that come along with that. How does this play
0: in Russia, in Moscow, those people with their cards that don't work?
7: So it's it, it's really hard. to I mean, the, the general support is really hard to tell. There have been a lot of protests, a lot of arrests. The Russian information sphere, I mean, it's not like it's not as it's not as easy as it is for China, like, say, comparing it to China, it's harder for the Russians to really close down the information space. They've closed down a lot of outlets, but Russians can still figure out a way to find things out. But I think they're going to be shocked. I mean, there's, you know, a, a, you know, the, especially the younger generations there are going to be shocked. And, and I and I think many of them are not nostalgic about the, the Cold War as some older generations are. And so I think there's going to be a lot of unrest.
0: Jeffrey Edmonds with us, national security strategist, senior analyst at the Center uh, New American Security Research Organization in Arlington, Virginia, former director for Russia on the National Security Council in the Obama administration. Jeff, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
7: Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today
0: podcast from 900 CHML. Dan McTagg, president of of, uh, Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, is with us now. Dan, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
8: I am, thank you, except uh, when I go to a gas station.
0: Uh, Tell me about it. I want you to listen to this clip from the Prime Minister and tell me if this is accurate. This is what he said today with the leaders of the Netherlands and uh, UK in Europe.
9: What Vladimir Putin has
0: broken here is a trust where I've heard a
9: number of Europeans reflect on it's too bad that we are so dependent on Russian oil, but we're not going to make that mistake again, and they are moving away from it. Canada imports negligible amounts of uh, Russian petrochemicals and oil. We've banned that, but we are, of course, self-sustainable in terms of oil.
0: Are we self-sustainable in terms of oil, Dan? No. <laughs> where the
8: heck like
9: imported he... every day
8: in eastern canada proves that it's not and he's basically saying oh yeah but we uh, we export four billion but we bring in seven million so that uh, that's a you know that's a scratch for us that's no problem we do uh, he can say that on the whole but uh, the reality is that most of quebec and the maritimes import oil because we don't have a pipeline that'll be the pipeline
0: he killed over 50 percent of the gas east of ontario is imported of the oil yeah,
8: that number does vary. I mean, it's uh, it really depends. It's
0: not negligible.
8: <laughs> no, it's, not. it's definitely not negligible. Uh, the oil comes from primarily the United States. It's uh, the United States provides oil to the Jean Gaulain, uh Pipe uh, Refinery in Quebec City. That's a pretty big one. Uh, Irving probably gets and accounts for the vast majority of imported oil that's non North American. Although they bring in some North American oil, but. That's the frank reality: is that uh, much of what we have here is uh, hell. We produce oil in Hibernia, which is usually sent to European markets or to the U.S. Northeast. Uh, but uh, no, we're not sufficient. He knows it, and he has a lot to do with uh, with uh, with creating of the environment where not only are we insufficient, we have a Canadian dollar that uh, takes 128 pennies to buy one U.S. dollar. Whereas in the past, we actually were selling more oil, increasing those uh, pipelines, selling to the United States and uh, and protecting Canadians to the tune of, wait for it, 25 cents a litre. So you know, dilly-dallying with these numbers, uh, really, and these kind of comments, uh, really is an injustice to every person listening right now, Scott. 25 cents a litre is what we would normally see as a discount with the strength of the Canadian dollar, but because we block pipelines, In this country, and I know economists don't like this, but they damn well don't talk about it. I'm the one that actually goes in and takes the time to calculate these currency numbers to come up with a predicted price two days ahead. But if I'm looking at 65 litres and it's costing me now uh, an additional $0.25, then I'm now looking at uh, paying an, an additional 15 $20 a week multiplied by 52 weeks you can see where Canadian families are falling
0: behind. He was almost gloating about it. Well, wow, we've got tons of oil, so, you know, and like both sides of his mouth. And saying we're self-sufficient, my goodness, you tell that to the people out west, there'll be an, there'll be a revolt. Yeah, and look,
8: I, this guy is, uh, is, at the best of times, a con artist. Uh, but, you know, people voted for him. That's what they like. They like the, yeah. hair, they like the socks. They like the sobbing. But they don't like the fact that, uh, the, the cost of, uh, uh, their food when they go to Walmart or when they go to Sobey's or when they go to, that's a more expensive one, where I go, Food Basics, is not exactly any, uh, cheaper, uh, as a result of being self-sufficient. Frankly, it's a joke and he knows it. But, uh, you know, the, this this whole thing about, uh, self-sufficiency would come to pass if it was, if he wasn't so damn, you know, uh, insistent on raising the price of energy in three weeks on April Fool's Day. We'll see who the fool is. Uh,
0: it, it seems odd he's traveled over there to sort of uh, project an, uh, uh, yeah, an image of unity after we're questioning the Emergencies Act here. And, of course, price is going through the roof, so it gets hot in the kitchen, get out. He goes over to Europe, but he's being accused of not spending enough on military. The press there have been asking him that, which is something that's that's needed right now, as well as Canadian energy to help Europe. And again, they talk about renewables. Well, my goodness, Germany is on the cutting edge of renewables. Everybody knows that. Yet it's them that shut down their nuclear plants to buy more fuel from Russia. So is there is there an energy alternative here that somebody's hiding that we don't know about? Because always thought that germany was sort of on the cutting edge of that sort of stuff
8: yeah no the tech, they've been trying for 30 years and they've been fleecing people with their green technologies and look what's happened they wound up uh, eating out of vladimir putin's hand and gave him all the money he needed to destroy and sack uh, ukraine look it is the green uh, pursuit of green energy and this frivolous idea that you can somehow supplement what nuclear what coal oil and natural gas are doing that would give us this uh you know that uh you you could somehow run uh you know a modern economy it's been proven to be absolutely bogus uh, there has been an energy crisis in europe since the temperatures got cold last at the end of doc- late october electricity natural gas price of prices have gone through the roof bojo knows full well the man he met uh, earlier today knows full well that he's got to take uh, you know uh, net zero policy and get rid of it deep six it as quickly as you can because Britons are not going to put up with the nonsense that now now that Europe, Europe has gone down this hole, and it is a hole, Canada wants to follow that by doing the same bloody thing, getting rid of our oil, getting rid of our natural gas, uh, switching over to hydroelectric, as if that's going to be a big deal. Quebec, by the way, borrowed one heck of a lot of natural gas-produced energy from Ontario in the past couple of months, for those out there who think it's the other way around. And you know what we have is a Prime Minister going over there, virtue-signaling, when he, in fact, should go over there and take account for the fact that if we had an Energy East pipeline, at least the Europeans would have a half a million barrels of oil today that they don't have, and which they're desperate to get.
0: I'm asking that question a lot since this whole thing started, and the answers are beginning to change, Dan. I was talking to a prophet U of T today saying Canada should have built pipelines, and you know, even if this goes on for another 10 years, you could very well see that.
8: There's a Praetorian guard of people, elites, education, media, uh, politicians who are prepared to say, "Oh no, no, we can kill Northern Gateway. There goes a million barrels. We can kill Energy East. There goes a million barrels. We can actually say nothing about the Keystone XL pipeline. There goes a million barrels. And we can vandalize the and allow British Columbia and other you know uh, activists funded by international organizations who should damn well be investigated to see if in fact there is." Russian ties to these organizations, because I sense that if it happened in the UK and Europe, it sure as hell happened here in Canada. We wound up tying up the Trans Mountain pipeline to the point where the uh, the owner, Kinder Morgan, said, listen, you guys, we're going to shut this down and we're going to sue your backsides because you gave us permission and now you're playing bloody games. So now you and I are on the hook for several billion dollars So when Skippy goes across the ocean to do his little uh, song and dance and uh, is rightly repudiated for other things, maybe it's time for Canadians to clue in and say, rather than saying, oh, I'm going to buy an electric car because it's $2 a litre, maybe what you should be asking yourself is, why the hell did a country, as blessed in energy as ours, will we allow someone to put us in a situation where it is $2 a litre? I can tell you, as I said at the outset, You'd have saved $0.25 a litre if you had had pipelines in this country, and we probably would have brought the international price of oil down had we had 2 million extra barrels to give that Russia can no longer hold over our heads.
0: Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, talking about getting Canadian energy to the rest of the world, which is now needed more than ever. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, thanks so much, Scott. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Why are we buying anything from Russia? Why does for, uh, almost 50% of the energy consumed east of Ontario, Quebec, the Maritimes, uh, 50% of it is imported? So what's he talking about? What is the Prime Minister talking about? We're self-sufficient in oil. And, you know, we're not buying it from Russia anymore. Well, if we're self-sufficient, why would we be buying it in Russia? From Russia. It doesn't make sense. But the majority of our oil for Eastern Ontario or for Eastern Canada comes from Russia, Saudi Arabia, and the United States. $884 million worth in 2019 from Russia alone. But we're self-sufficient. No, 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 we should be. It's like uh, the Prime Minister got confused and put on his Western Canada mask today. And kind of gloats about being oil self-sufficient. Sustainable. Self-sustainable was the word he used. No, we're not. All the refined product we buy in Ontario comes from somewhere else. We don't even refine it anymore. Uh, unbelievable. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist with your Ham- uh, sports columnist or columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, I hope you're doing well.
9: I am. Although well, I disagree with one thing you just said because you what? just said that the prime minister put on his western hat, something like that. See, I don't think so. I don't think anybody out west heard those comments and went, oh, yeah, no, no, he's on our side now because he's saying we're self-sustainable. I think a lot of people out west looked at that and said, um, yeah, I don't think you understand what you've done to our oil and gas industry and to our economy. I, I, don't, I don't see anybody from out west looking at that comment and being reassured by it. I think it's almost a taunt.
0: How can you stand up there and stay in front of Europe who are starving for Canadian energy that we're self-sustainable? How can you say that when the majority of the oil to eastern Canada is imported, including God, Quebec? I, I it's go back to what
9: we I go back to what we talked about last week. There, there's two issues at play here. One of them is, Putin, as you just talked about with those dollars, I mean, we are unintentionally, we're not doing it for this reason, but we are, along with other countries, Helping to pay for this war because we have pumped millions of dollars into the Russian economy that we could choose not to do by being the provider to many European countries of our oil and gas. And therefore, the money, not only are we not propping up Putin, but look, $200 a barrel oil, which is what some experts are now talking about, is not good for anybody. But imagine what the Canadian economy and taxes would benefit if we were getting $200. Per bar- barrel for oil, and we are yeah. pumping out ten yeah. times as much because we could get it, or five times, I don't know, three times as much because we could get it exported. Suddenly, you know that massive, 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 enormous, gigantic, ridiculous debt that we now have. Yeah, we could we could chip away at that a little bit, base with money coming in from other countries helping us to pay off that debt. I mean, it's a it's a win win. Now, again, I understand what the environmentalists are going to say. And my answer to that always is us not producing oil as clean as we can do it is not stopping the rest of the world from using oil. So would you prefer to have dirty oil from other countries all over the world and us be pious and say, look how good we're doing, or would you prefer to produce the cleanest oil possible, remove those chances that those other countries are producing it dirty, and try and improve things a little bit, plus help us. I just... And and instead, they're...
0: And instead, they're jumping, again, it's like this is either or or, and it's not. The solution's in the middle. But it's like, well, that's why we should have been putting more into uh, renewables. It's like, is Germany not the most innovative, inventive nation known on the planet when it comes to this sort of thing? Aren't they the most uh, innovative, looking for new ways to create renewable energy? They're the ones that just closed down their nuclear plants, and they're now relying solely or, or largely on Russian natural gas. You know, they making it sound as if you know there's some sort of brand new invention and it's just on the horizon we're just about it and it's not if Germany hasn't figured out a way to do it then who the hell else is going to do it I, I mean they just don't realize meaning the environmentalists we got to bridge this gap
9: well I mean look I, I my my other answer to this is always to those who are the staunchest of the staunch who believe wholeheartedly that we should produce no oil and we should shut this industry down and all the rest Um, I I have always invited them to lead by example, shut off their oil, heat their home by electricity, which they'll bankrupt themselves in about a week, uh, or by solar panels or by windmills. Feel free or by burning coal. No, you can't burn coal. You can't burn wood because that's bad for the environment. So if you are convinced that, that we are damaging the economy as much as you say we are, you should surely not be heating your house right now with any kind of fossil fuels. How many people fall into that category?
0: Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Have a good one, Scott. As always, thanks so much for the time. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.